Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Bubs. This is Season 2, Episode number 31, and of course, we're fresh off our mid-year, one-week-long break, and so today I am rejuvenated and excited and honored to be speaking with renowned researcher and sports scientist, Professor Ross Anderson, on his recent work in tracking season-long changes in body composition and biomarkers in collegiate football players. In this episode, Dr. Ross will discuss the general trends he sees in lean mass and fat mass over the course of a season and how those trends vary depending on position. He also shares some insights on differences in lean mass gains between athletes who actually stayed on campus during the off season compared to those who trained remotely or individually. He also dives into similar work he's done in collegiate male and female hockey players comparing and contrasting to collegiate football players as well as sharing some insights from his time working in the NFL with the Philadelphia Eagles and Baltimore Ravens. Finally, Dr. Ross also provides some tips and insights on how sports scientists and practitioners can navigate the sometimes tricky terrain of communicating their findings effectively to coaches. Fantastic insights here from Dr. Ross and his many, many years of experience uh, in research and in the field. You can link to the research papers discussed here at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, these simple, actionable tips. If you're interested in more on this topic, uh, then definitely circle back to season two, episode number 12 with Dr. Sean Arendt on body composition changes and monitoring, as well as season two, episode 25 with head strength and conditioning coach of the NBA's Sacramento Kings, Ramsey Nijem on athlete monitoring. Terrific. Well, if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. You can get caught up on season two with our Rewind Highlights episode, which is number 18 from this year. And of course, if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Great to have you back. Uh, another great episode for you in store here today. So if you do enjoy, of course, please share with followers and tag us in at Dr. Bubs. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. All right. Before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 2, Episode 31. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Ross Anderson, a professor and researcher in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at McGill University and the director of the McGill Research Center for Physical Activity and Health. Ross, thanks for taking the time today, and uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. 
Terrific. Well, before we dive into some of your work around uh, changes in, in body composition and various performance metrics throughout the seasons in, in collegiate athletes, can you maybe give listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got into the research side of things? Well, sure. Um, I guess my my background was um, initially I, I did a, an undergraduate degree in, in physical education and uh, exercise science. Uh, at McGill University, and then continued with Dr. David Montgomery, who was a sport physiologist. We did a lot of work with uh, elite alpine skiers, uh, looking at performance predictors in in that area. I moved to Philadelphia um, afterwards and did a PhD at Temple University and had an opportunity to do a lot of work with the Philadelphia Flyers and the Philadelphia Eagles while while I worked in Philadelphia. And from there, I moved to Baltimore. Um, at, and worked at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine as a professor and um, did some work with the Ravens there uh, while, I, while I lived in Baltimore. And in 2007, I returned to Canada. Um, I'm at McGill University now, and um, I teach in the Department of Kinesiology. I have joint appointments in nutrition and medicine as well. Do a lot of work with our varsity athletes here in Montreal. Terrific. Well, um that's a great jumping off point for, for the recent paper you guys published on the longitudinal changes in body composition throughout successive seasonal phases among Canadian university football players. Um, yeah. Can you walk listeners through sort of the, uh, the purpose of the study and, and the setup? Okay. Um, well, my, one of my grad students was a, a football player, um, and uh, he played for the McGill Redmond here in Montreal. Um, and we, we were kind of curious what, what happened um, to the athlete's body composition. And varsity athletes are, are kind of um, a, a unique group of athletes because they have to sort of juggle the, the stresses of playing and, and this, this season um, uh, during the season with their, their academic performance as well. And here at McGill, we're very strict and we, we tend to attract very, uh, you know, high caliber students in addition to high caliber athletes. Absolutely. Uh, so we, we wanted to sort of look at the, um, at what what happened to the athlete's body composition? We very fortunate in my lab to have a, a whole body DEXA scanner, which can assess um, muscle mass, fat mass, and bone mass as well. Um, and we wanted to look and see what happened over the course of the playing season, in addition to the off season. So we we sort of got um, we were fortunate. We we assessed body composition before the athletes went home for the summer in in sort of the end of the um, the second semester in April and then reassess them when they came back to playing camp in, in August and then reassess them again at the end of the competitive season. So we were able to sort of look at the impact of off-season training um, and and what happened as well during the competitive season. Yeah, it's fascinating to see. I mean, obviously, looking at the study, linemen would be the ones who's starting off with the greatest uh, body fat percentages, followed by some of the big skill players, and then of course the leanest being the the highly skilled players. But maybe you could yep. walk uh, listeners through, you know, what were the findings throughout the season in terms of the things that really stood out. 
Well, um, so we, we, we did a number of things, but the, um, you know, I guess the, the, the primary purpose of the study was to look and, and see if there were differences between the, um, the, the, different, um, the different types of players. Um, we also wanted to look at the impact of whether or not the athletes, th- there was an impact for athletes who were local versus those who went home for the summer. Um, and, and then what happened to uh, body composition as as they progress through the season, um, we found that the the athletes actually got fatter as they they went through the season. Um, we found that athletes um, who were local, who who trained in the in the gym here at McGill, actually had better uh, greater increases in lean mass over the course of the summer as well which was kind of interesting to us because I guess the you know just the camaraderie and the 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 easy access to a strength coach um, was really helpful yeah I would say would you figure yeah things like access to obviously the strength coach and the program and maybe everybody sort of being bought in on terms of meals and timing and, and making sure they're adherent to, to the actual nutrition plan Right, right. And I, I think there's sort of a contagious effect. And, you know, when, when guys are in the gym working together, they, they can spot each other. Um, there's motivation. And, um, um, you know, there, I think there's really something to be said for that. It's much harder for athletes to, to train together. You know, I know uh, uh, several. Um, you know, there there are, are a lot of pro athletes that that sort of try to um, in the off season if they if they go to you know different parts of the uh, of the the country or the continent. Um, they they try to hook up with other players, even if they're from different teams, to uh, to train together. Yeah, absolutely. That motivation being a huge factor, and uh, I recently had Dr. Sean Arendt on, who's um, uses DEXA as well with his um, collegiate female soccer players over at Rutgers University, uh, and and monitoring you know changes in lean mass was was a big um, reason for him as well. And of course, it's interesting to see here that the players are are losing lean mass throughout the season. Um, right. Is that a simple result of of just the the stresses of of play and and training is there something going on in terms of the nutrition throughout the year with these guys that's a great question and we don't we don't quite have the answer i guess i could hypothesize a little bit um certainly we would expect athletes to come into training camp um you know in in peak shape and um you know they they haven't been playing hard they haven't been injured over the course of the summer hopefully and um they've been able to spend time quality time in the gym um, so, you know, the goal is always to, to try to maintain those, those off-season gains during the season. Um, but, you know, the, the, with varsity athletes, there's the stress of travel, um, the stress of trying to keep up with their, their studies as well. You know, uh, we know that things get a little overwhelming, uh, you know, especially during the um, midterm exams and during, you know, it, it, as the final exams approach, it, it becomes much more uh, chaotic for them. Um, so they have to sort of uh, juggle juggle with with practice times, uh, travel, games, and their studies as well. And I think in many cases the um, you know the 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 weight room kind of loses out. Um, so they they may they may um, they may have a you know a, a, a skill practice on on the field, and they may may not just be able to work in the you know some um, time for heavy lifting during the uh, competitive season. 
hundred percent. I mean, it must be difficult, obviously, if you're staying up late, if you're studying and doing all those other things, to to not be wanting to to snack as well, or to, to succumb to um, you know some tasty treats or sweet things to keep you going um, that are right. going to shift that caloric intake. And of course, you saw increases in fat mass across the board. Was is that something that's sort of statistically significant? But when we look at the players, it's difficult to assess. Or were there some position players where it might be more of a concern? Well, I, I I think certainly for the skill players, we we would be more concerned if they were, uh, you know, if they if they're gaining from a performance perspective, you know, if they're gaining a lot of fat mass, the the you know the linemen by by nature they they tend to be you know heavier, bigger guys and and just just you know requiring the mass and even the cushioning for you know from the the repeated impact. Um, it, it's probably not as, as hazardous a thing. We certainly, you certainly see a lot more fat on, um, on, you know, even, um, NFL and CFL linemen when we, when we assess them. Um, but, uh, but certainly, you know, you, I mean, for the most part, uh, we don't like to see, um, gains in fat mass. I mean, I, I remember, um, when we had uh, Laurent uh, Duvernay-Tardif here at McGill, he's uh, he's with the Kansas City team now, uh, the Chiefs. Uh, incredible! And, um, he just got his medical degree, right? He just got his medical degree, and um, when we, you know, he was about three hundred pounds, and at the time he, when he was playing here, he averaged between eight and nine percent fat. I mean, the guy was like a Greek god, wow. and. Um, you know, I mean, from for Canadian uh, Canadian University football, he he just, I mean, there was nobody who could get through him or around him. He he was just so much stronger than everybody else at being so lean. So, um, I think today we're seeing, especially with pro athletes, that they um, they're they're you know it used to be the big these big chubby roly poly athletes, and you just don't see that at the, at the pro level anymore. Yeah, I was going to ask um, maybe first as it relates to on the collegiate level, how have you seen things change sort of over the 5, 10, 15, 20 years in terms of some of these collegiate athletes with the you know amounts of lean mass or, or body fat percentages? Has it really dramatically shifted? Is it you know similar to what it might have been a decade ago? I, I think probably it's probably quite similar. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, we, we know that uh, that athletes have better um, you know, better strength training programs. They have better facilities available to them. Uh, I think a lot of teams today are also working with dietitians, and uh, you know, we we tend to. Uh, I, I have a, a colleague from nutrition a couple years ago. Uh, uh, the former uh, the former football coach asked us to do a, a seminar for the the linemen, which he felt were were a little bit too um, you know were were overfat. And, um, we, you know, in, in the winter months, we, we got them, um, eating, um, eating differently. And, you know, I think there's, there's also a, a macho element, uh, with, with football teams where, where the guys go out together and they're, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, our, our guys were going to all you could eat sushi bars. Yeah, and sure. they, uh, See who can out eat uh, whom. And and just having contests to see who could eat the most sushi, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, there there's um, the 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 drinking culture as well, which um, you know is often associated with a lot of the the more uh, impact sports, as you know. So uh, trying to curtail that a little bit um, and uh, and get get the athletes eating in a more uh, sensible way, uh, obviously, is uh, is to their benefit. 
For sure, yeah. I mean, definitely uh, team building and all that kind of stuff is good, but uh, finding that striking that balance is, is obviously important as well. And um, if we if we dovetail into some of the work you've done um, in male and female elite collegiate players, but on the ice hockey side of things, um, yes, the recent study. Can you compare some of the differences between the football and hockey, or perhaps maybe um, diving into the study that you did do in terms of the, the setup um, and purpose would be great. Mm-hmm. So we 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 were interested to look at the um, at differences between um, men and women and and how their their body compositions change over time. Um, you know, we uh, here at McGill, we uh, I think when we did that study, uh, four of the girls on our team were Olympians, and they're you know they they play very high level hockey. Um, most collegiate male hockey players in Canada are, um, are former junior players. Um, I think 17 of our 20 hockey players, um, on our varsity team have uh, major junior experience. So it's a, it's a fairly high level. The, I guess the differences are that most men who are playing varsity hockey in Canada tend to be, um, you know their their careers are are over, and a lot of the women who are playing um, may still be competing at a you know at a or hoping to compete at a uh, a national level. Um, obviously, there's not as much demand for pro female hockey as there is for men. Uh, some some male athletes, male varsity athletes, will go and play in in Europe or in um, uh, abroad after they uh, they finish playing. Terrific. And in the study, you looked at things like blood lactate concentrations, heart rates, uh, body fat percentage. Um, can you give us an idea of, of what, what was happening with the players throughout the season? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think in, in many cases we, we see similar patterns. I mean, it, the the athletes tend to be in their the best shape when they come in in the fall. And, you know, much like football, um, especially with, you know, male hockey players, uh, um, their injuries come into play and they're, they're playing hurt or they, they may get sidelined at times. And um, certainly when they're when they're not, you know, the when they're not uh, playing, um, they they tend to um, to decondition, um, and certainly it's it's a real challenge to maintain those off season gains throughout the season as it is for for any athlete really. Um, there there's some uh, you know athletes talk about um, about getting into game shape as well, and certainly you know when they're not they may not be skating as much or. Uh, you know, uh, having as much on ice time during the summer months. Um, so the, you know, the, there seems to be a bit of a shift where they, when they actually get on the ice, they, they will decrease the amount of time that they're spending in the gym. And, uh, they, I guess there's some, a little more sports specific fitness that takes place as well, which is, is kind of hard to quantify. Um, but we, um, we know that, um, that they that there there tends to be in both pro and and non-pro players um, losses in lean mass over the course of the of the season. Yeah, it was interesting as you said as well, kind of playing yourself into shape because uh, you know in the hockey study there, seeing that the males' body fat percentage would decrease 
uh, from uh-huh. the start of camp to mid-season, then start to then increase uh, as you went from mid to end of season. Um, yeah. so, so like you mentioned, some similar trends in terms of the, the football players, hockey players. Um, yeah. You know, For yourself as the physiologist, as a sports scientist, and what are some of the big take-homes that you're trying to communicate to coaching staff around some of the information that you're gathering in, in, in this work? Mm. Well, um, you know, I think I think one of the things that we we need to uh, well that we need to consider is is the importance of monitoring. And uh, you know, I would love to be able to to um, to you know to work with all the the teams here at McGill or um, you know within our, our city. We we do some work with with the pro teams, um, but I think I think monitoring and understanding the the changes that are taking place and. You know some of the the, the the unique things that that Dexa technology offer us is regional changes as well. So we can look and see, you know, what's happening with respect to upper versus lower body changes. Like, uh, you know, are they maintaining the upper body and losing in the lower body, or vice versa? We can also look at symmetry as well. So right versus left. And, you know, when we look at an athlete like a, a kicker, for example, we may see that their plant leg has um, you know, we, uh, we, we've often seen like an extra kilo of, of lean mass in the plant leg compared to the kicking leg. And wow. when we look at a, a quarterback, you'll see that their, their throwing arm will have maybe a half a kilo more muscle mass than their non-throwing arm. So, um, you know, I think, I think, um, these kind of patterns can be really helpful for a coach to see and, uh, and track. And, you know, if they're, if they're seeing that, um, you know, the athletes are, are losing gas in the second half of the season, which we often see, you know, you'll, you'll, you, you look at some teams when they squeak into the playoffs, they have nothing left in the tank, uh, to play, you know, if they're, if they've had a real tough run up to the playoffs, uh, um, they, they don't have anything left in the tank. So I think, I think, um, conditioning and, and, um, and maintenance is, is just as critical as the, the off season training. And it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a challenge for strength and conditioning coaches to find the balance, you know, and to get athletes to, to buy into, um, the whole, the whole notion of, of trying to maintain those gains over the course of the season. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And then like you mentioned, just that importance of being able to monitor those individual changes, um, which way it's going to really help inform um, what coaches, practitioners, nutritionists are doing um, with those athletes is so key. And uh, if we stay on the topic of the DEXA, is there, are there certain things, you know, for maybe practitioners listening in that they should consider around, you know, how they perform the test in terms of standardizing it to avoid any kind of error that might occur with, uh, with testing using the DEXA? Well, um, you know, the, it, it's fairly... I mean, the procedures are, are fairly. St- we try to standardize them, so we calibrate the machine with uh, with a, a, a what's called a phantom every every morning before we do any kind of assessments, and um, we try. You know, the positioning is is critical uh, to get the right positioning on the the scan bed. Um, so, um, you know, if if I'm doing uh, what what we call a longitudinal study, where we're we're assessing and reassessing a group of of athletes, we'll we'll try as much as possible to you to use the same investigator um, for testing and retesting, so that there we kind of we try to remove that area or that uh, potential bias that might occur with uh, with that. But for the most part. 
you know, the machine is is wonderful at at looking at these kind of longitudinal changes in in regional or in whole body composition. And we, we're doing a lot of work in my lab as well with especially female athletes right now, um, looking at at bone mass. So we can we can measure. Um, individual regions of the body, like the lumbar vertebrae, for example, or the femoral neck, um, looking at, at bone mineral density and um, in, uh, in those um, regions, which are, are you know, obviously um, areas where we see that osteoporosis plays a, a tremendous role. So um, I think, you know, the cool thing about DEXA is that it gives you a three-compartment model. So when we, you know, in the old yep. days, we used to do um, we used to do underwater weighing a lot with with athletes, but it was really just a two compartment model. So we were looking at fat and all the rest. Um, with with the DEXA, we can kind of look at fat free, mineral free tissue as well. So um, we're we're truly looking at at uh, when we talk about fat free, mineral free tissue, we're really looking at muscle mass. Fantastic. And, and Doc, if we shift gears a little bit to your time uh, in the NFL and, and, you know, originally working with the Eagles, what are some of the big things that stand out from you uh, or to you from, you know, the professional ranks to the collegiate ranks uh, in terms of whether it's on the training side of things, the monitoring, the nutrition? <laughs> Jeez, I, I, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think, um, I, you know, the, the athletes that have the longest um, the longest history, uh, Gary Anderson comes to mind. He was, uh, it was interesting. We, we had, um, he was a kicker for the Eagles while I was there working in Philadelphia. And he, he had, I think the longest career, uh, in NFL history. Um, and he's, I believe that he's still the, the all time points leader for the NFL. Um, you know, he, he played many, many years, like, like possibly 20 years. Yeah. It's um, incredible. I mean, he, he played for, I don't know if he played till he was 50 or so, but he was definitely getting up there. Yeah, yeah, and and he had a, very, a highly specialized uh, program. I mean, he he was he was fanatical, um, you know, with, with stretching, and um, obviously that's a that's a, a position that requires tremendous flexibility and strength and sports specific strength. He did a lot of work in uh, in the pool. Um, and you know, just, just the, in terms of longevity, I think it really, it really helped him, um, working with, with very, you know, with highly specialized, uh, training programs. And it was interesting because his son, Austin came to McGill. We, and he was our kicker for, for four years. He got drafted by the Colts, um, when he finished up here. So I'd actually worked with his dad or, and, and with Austin as well. It was pretty cool. Wow. Um, working with both generations of, of kickers. But uh, so my, my, from my perspective, I remember we, we had, um, there was a, a guy, um, um, you know, um, from the Eagles, um, uh, Herschel Walker. I'm sorry, I, I don't know why I, I couldn't come up with it, but no uh, he, he was, um, you know, I, I use the example in my, when I, uh, when I teach a physical activity and health class here, he was about six foot one. He weighed, 240 pounds. Um, so when we do the arithmetic with BMI, um, you know, he, he was probably, um, he had a BMI of like 33 and he was, uh, he, we classify him as obese. Yeah, definitely he, not obese, he had right? About four, he had about 4% fat. 
He he was just he, he was like a, a perfect uh, uh, Greek god, <laughs> and uh, he you know again. Uh, I mean, he he certainly was was a, a dominant uh, fullback. I mean, he he would come through the line and uh, and just run over guys. And I think part of it was the fact that he was such a you know uh, he he was um, highly conditioned and and certainly had had good genes as well, um, but he. Um, you know, he, he stayed in, in top shape and um, people used to talk about him doing, you know, like hundreds of pull-ups and, and sit-ups and, uh, and push-ups. He, he did a lot of uh, sort of calisthenics and uh, w- using his own body weight. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, just on the you know, genetic side of things and physical freaks, and then all of a sudden they're, they're also paying attention to everything around their training and nutrition and sleep and whatnot, and you just get these incredible athletes. And, you know, at the time, what was the biggest difference for yourself in terms of some of the, the testing or monitoring then compared to now? Has it changed a lot, or are some of the fundamentals still pretty much uh, the same as before? Well, I, I think the, um, you know, with with the advent of DEXA, um, that has changed, and you know there there are many uh, NFL teams that have them in the, in their in their training rooms right now. Um, they have you know just de- dedicated to the team. So I think we we can be much more precise than we could. You know when we were doing underwater weighing, there were a lot of variables that uh, that were difficult to account for, like residual lung volume. We used to try to measure residual lung volumes to to estimate what that was and there was um you know there was an error for gi gases that were more buoyant as well so um it, it was not as precise and 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 reproducible as as the technology that we have today and certainly with with metabolic carts where we measure where we measure um, oxygen capacity and uh, aerobic fitness um the metabolic carts that we have today are are better and and more precise than we we had you know 20 years ago um so i think uh, i think the the technologies that we have today can really help um you know coaching staff and strength and conditioning professionals to to tailor and um and develop better better training programs and you know that can be monitored yeah it's amazing where we've come to at this point and course one of the things i do hear from uh you know in, in talking with staff from various teams uh, various sports is this idea of you know being able to monitor and collect this information and of course when it comes time you know sometimes for the sports scientists to communicate with the coaching staff you know the, the communication is not always seamless or it's not always the the advice or or the in- insights aren't always taken on board um you know for yourself as a sports scientist would you have any you know, sort of advice or tactics or tips to help um, communicate some of that uh, information. Yeah. Um, well, I I think it's important to uh, you know for um, for sports scientists who are working with teams and coaches to to get a, a sense of um, you know what the the level of understanding the coach has. A lot of there, there, there are a lot of coaches, especially the the old school guys, who who are a little skeptical of all of this this sort of newfangled, um, you know, um, technology monitoring, technology yeah. and exercise physiology, and they they really, you know, there's not a hundred percent buy-in. I guess they may they may get the you know they may understand that they 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 need to do it, but they don't know why. Um, so for for I mean, if I was working with a coach like um, like that. 
I would be much more likely to try to um, sort of, you know, pick out the highlights and and help them to to you know go through the the data and, and interpret the data. I would keep my reports more on the the simple side. And um, sometimes, you know, you you get a coach um, who's um, you know who, who who I mean I think increasingly we're going to see the next generation of coaches are going to come from the sports science communities. I mean we we um, um, we're seeing you know the the young coaches today are it's not uncommon for them to have you know um, master's degrees in exercise physiology or in in sports psychology. So they really understand the data. They can read. You know the, the the kinds of studies that that I'm doing, or uh, and, and interpret them and 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 put them to use. So you know, if, if I'm working with a coach like that, um, who who is interested, I I will will give them a lot more of the raw data, and they may be able to to work with the uh, you know with the coaching staff or the, um, uh, the the strength and conditioning coaches to to help them to to better tailor. The, the kind of um, of training programs that they're they're providing and hopefully that translates to better you know on field or on ice performance yeah it's it's really uh, really exciting to see that, uh, that evolution that you you know you talk about there and that dovetails into my next question which is you know in the next five or ten years you know where do you see uh, from a sports science uh, monitoring testing side of things where do you see the research going Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, I, I think I, I I think a lot of what we're um, what we're going to be looking at is is helping athletes who are recovering from injury. So, you know, with with the kinds of technology that we've been talking about today, we we know what an athlete's baseline is, and you know, we're seeing this with concussions as well. Like the uh, uh, we we want to get a baseline sort of cognitive status on someone. We can also get a baseline body composition status, um, a baseline aerobic fitness status um, in in the gym or in the lab. And you know, if an athlete gets gets hurt or is injured, we can reassess them and say, "Well, look, you're you're not quite back yet. You're you're still, you know, you're you you're still your your lean mass is still down by a, a, a kilo." Um, and I, I think it'd be smarter for you to spend another couple of weeks in the gym before getting back on the field. So I I think that 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 kind of of recovery from injury is going to be a, a, a critical thing. Um, and and also understanding the the you know the seasonality of of the the training program. So you know how do we how do we help those um, those athletes that require you know excessive strength or or great strength? How do we help them to uh, to optimize in the off season their their training programs and and then help them to to really maintain throughout the playing season those gains that they've achieved that's that's really um that's that's sort of the uh, the million dollar question and and how do how do we go about doing that yeah very well said i mean definitely on the injury side of things of losing players to injury obviously in the nfl with hamstring pulls being so prevalent and you know whether it's baseball or basketball nowadays if you're losing your star players at the wrong time of year then that's a, a huge problem when it comes to the playoffs and everything else so oh yeah uh, really really insightful there and you know if we shift gears on the personal side of things in terms of your research or, uh, you know, what are the kind of things that sort of excite you at the moment or what are some future projects that you have coming down the pipeline? Well, uh, I, 
we're just in the process right now of um, of assessing um, bone mineral density and and bone mineral bone health essentially in uh, in many types of female athletes. Um, we're looking at female hockey players, soccer players, uh, volleyball players, basketball players, and synchro swimmers um, um, to to see if we can look at some predictors of of bone health. Uh, we we found in the past that that female athletes who don't stress their bones as much tend to have the same the same bone health and bone profiles as women who. Um, you know, who are completely sedentary, female students who are completely sedentary. And um, so I, I, I think eventually what we'd like to do is to uh, take, say, swimmers or synchro swimmers or um, athletes that are, are not, you know, loading up the bone as much and seeing if we can, can develop um, alternative programs for them, training programs that stress the bone a little more to try to you know, take into consideration the importance of um, of optimizing bone health when these women are 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 you know in the in their twenties um, is is critical because we know that that we we sort of lay down a foundation of bone um, in the twenties that we we draw on um, throughout a lifetime. So it, it you know I think it's critical to establish um, good healthy uh, habits and and programs that um, that optimize bone health and and metabolic health as well wow it's exciting stuff look forward to to seeing those results and uh, of course I want to respect your time here uh, doc as well so last question for you um, mm -hmm. if, if we circle back to the the monitoring side of things in terms of some of those longitudinal season long changes whether it's a football player hockey player you know what's one piece of advice that you might give? Uh, a strength coach or practitioner or young sports scientists around this topic. I, I guess the, um, the the advice I would give them is is to um, you know develop relationships with the athletes to which uh, allow them to um, to really um, help them to optimize the the um, uh, the potential gains that they they. Um, that they, they they hope to achieve, you know, if they if they're if they don't have the relationships to say, hey, look, I need you in the gym tomorrow. Uh, when that athlete feels tired, they're just not going to show up. And um, you know, the, the the they do show up when they when there's a good relationship there. So I think it's critical to um, you know to to develop those relationships and to um, to also recognize that that every athlete is going to respond differently. You're going to have athletes that you think are are fantastic who who are are responders. They you know they they do everything you say and they and they they get much stronger and and more powerful than other athletes. You you know are in the gym working and, and they don't respond as well. So, um, you know, tailoring the programs and understanding that everybody is going to respond differently to the, the training programs that we develop is, is critical and, um, and, and also um, um, will lead to hopefully better on-field or on-ice performance. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, great, great advice and definitely you know, I love how it comes back to the human side of things, even with all the great technology and monitoring and assessment, as you mentioned, if you don't have that relationship with the athlete um, or whatnot, it's just it's difficult to go that extra mile and to get them to show up or to push 
uh, as hard as they need to, et cetera. So that's, that's terrific. Well, Doc, I appreciate your time today. You know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your terrific uh, work and research? Well, we, uh, we, we do, um, I, I have a, a website, uh, mcgill.ca. If they uh, type in Ross Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, you, you can uh, pick up um, uh, some of our latest work. And certainly, um, you know, uh, on PubMed or on Google Scholar, um, most of my studies will, will show up there. We're, we're doing um, probably a half a dozen um performance studies a year that that get published in the scholarly journals and that's usually where where i put most of of my work fantastic well i'll definitely include the links to the papers that we discussed here in the show notes as well as that link uh drbubs.com forward slash podcast uh doc thanks again for for coming on the show thanks again for everyone else tuning in if you have any questions for dr ross anderson or want to leave a comment on today's episode we'd love to hear from you you can reach out on facebook instagram or twitter at dr bubs course if you enjoy the show please take a minute subscribe on itunes or your favorite platform greatly appreciate it thanks again everyone and see you guys all next week the dr bubs performance podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional you should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.